just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. With just a week to go until polling day, we take a look at what Corbyn's Britain would look like. Plus, is planting more trees the panacea to climate change? And last, how young is too young to have political opinions? First, though the Tories are consistently and comfortably leading in the polls, nothing can be taken for granted in politics if recent years are anything to go by. So what would happen if Corbyn really does get into number 10? In this week's cover piece, economist and Telegraph columnist Liam Halligan breaks down the consequences of Corbyn's domestic agenda. He speaks to Katie Balls and Michael Jacobs, Professor of Political Economy at Sheffield University and former advisor to Gordon Brown. Liam, in this week's Spectator cover piece, you write about what you say would be the the nightmare in Downing Street. Should there be a Labour majority or actually even minority government come Friday the 13th? Can you explain to listeners what you believe would be so nightmarish about this situation? Well, there are two things. Firstly, there'd be the stasis of a hung parliament. I think the country's sick and tired of nothing happening. A lot of Remain voters are sick and tired of nothing happening. Uh, as well as many Leave voters. So Brexit would once again be in doubt. I think that would really do a lot to undermine the UK's reputation as a place of competent governance and, and relative political stability. But on top of that, even though there's lots of ideas uh, that the Labour Party put forward that I do think are worth considering, I think the the scope and the scale of Labour's tax and spend plans as outlined in the manifesto, the most radical manifesto since 1983 and arguably even more radical, are actually tipping us into a situation where uh, the UK's credit rating could be undermined, you could have a run on sterling. So for me it's not just the, the kind of political stasis that would emerge if yet again our first post the post system didn't lead to a clear Uh, ruling party so we can actually properly pass legislation it's also some of the specifics of the Labour plans. Um, Michael and I'm guessing already the answer to this question might be no Um, do you agree with what Liam just said? No. Liam's painted a very lurid uh, account in his piece which will no doubt have poor spectator readers quivering under their bedclothes waiting for the bogeyman. But I don't think it's true in either respect. So let's just first come to the likelihood, uh, I think, of a hung parliament. Certainly if uh, Jeremy Corbyn were to become Prime Minister, a majority for Labour looks very unlikely now, but a minority government. Actually, you would get quite a quick resolution, or at least a uh, progress being made, um, because the Labour Party is committed to a uh, second referendum, and all the minority parties, other than uh, which in the uh, in a likely parliament, that is other than the Tories, support that. So I think we would be able to move quite quickly towards a referendum, which would clearly come to the final decision. Whereas a small, uh, as Liam says in his piece, a small majority for the Conservatives, even a small majority or a minority Conservative government doesn't necessarily lead to 
to Brexit because of the the problems of of getting it through Parliament. So I don't think that's true. I think it's more interesting to talk about Labour's programme, and I think Liam exaggerates the impact that it would have, both economically uh, in terms of, as he puts it, a run on a pound and in various other ways. I don't think it's nearly as lurid a a picture uh, as he paints. Liam, on that, in your piece, uh, you mention various ills that could come about from a Labour government, the pound falling, inflation rising, investors putting their money elsewhere. There are some who would say, actually, this is Project Fear, something that perhaps you yourself have said Project Fear in relation to Brexit. There is a sense, I think, over the past couple of years that the public get a little bit sick of warnings and don't necessarily take them all seriously. So what would you say to that? The public are sick of of endless fear-mongering. But, you know, unusually perhaps for a journalist, I'm a trained economist and I've been through the numbers. As I say, I've, I've often talked to people from the Labour Party about points of policy and, and, and some of what they say I, I, I agree with. But when I look at the numbers, it's an immediate £83 billion increase in spending, which is about 4% of GDP, uh, out of taxation. I don't think the tax plans that Labour have put forward are nearly approach £83 billion, so that would be more borrowing. Then there's another 3% of GDP, which Labour, to its credit, admits is more borrowing for capital spending, about £55 billion. So you're looking at at least 3 possibly 4 5 6% of GDP extra borrowing. I think at a time when we're already spending 7% of all tax revenue, over £50 billion, more than we spend on defence, more than we spend on schools, on debt interest, when interest rates are low, and interest rates can only really go up from where they are, I think that is worrying. There has been an effort in the Labour Manifesto to provide a costings document, and parts of their programme, the numbers are laid out in a coherent way, but there are big parts of the programme, the renationalisations, the the so-called National Transformation Fund, which are almost entirely uncosted, and any ready reckoning of the bill for those is, is in the hundreds of billions. These are huge sums. This is a huge charge list. The National Transformation Fund, which is fully costed in the manifesto, is a major programme, as they plan it, of investment in capital. The UK has a much lower rate of investment than most other, uh, as a proportion of GDP, than most other countries uh, like it. And we've been suffering from that low rate of investment ever since the financial crisis. It's one of the causes of our very low productivity. So a major investment programme, led by the public sector because the private sector isn't doing it, is exactly what the economy needs. And nearly all of that money will go into the private sector. When the public sector invests, it invests in buildings, engineering projects, uh, innovation and so on. All of that money goes into the private sector and is spent by the private sector. So there'll be new profitable opportunities for the private sector and for shareholders of the companies that uh, that make those investments. And I think that will generate uh, good financial returns for uh, sovereign debt holders. So I don't foresee capital flight at all occurring as a result of this. On the contrary, what I see in this programme is an attempt to deal with the extraordinary doldrums into which the British economy has been plunged since the financial crisis. Remember, we still have record low, near zero interest rates. We still have £445 billion worth of quantitative easing. And we've still got sluggish growth even after those. We have low productivity, low investment and so on. So this is a proper economic programme responding to the crisis conditions which our economy has been left in since the financial crisis. And as an economist too, and as 163 
uh, economist recently wrote to the Financial Times saying that they thought Labour's programme was the right programme for the British economy. I think Liam's just wrong in his analysis of uh, not only of the good it would do, um, but also the impact of the financial markets. I just don't think it would have those effects. Yeah, Liam, on that, I mean, ultimately, this is a shifting to a, a different type of economic model. But there are countries in Europe which do have much higher spend. If you say you look at Sweden, for example. So it is possible to do that and still, I suppose, have a functioning economy. It is, as, as, I, as I say in my piece, I acknowledge Michael's point that there are reasonably well-functioning economies and some quite well-functioning economies, including including Sweden, that have kind of levels of the GDP taken up by government spending up around 50% that Labour's now pushing for. But those were built up over a long period of time, and those countries have much wider, more established tax bases at that level. If you try to, you know, if you yank corporation tax in a single year from 19% to 26% at the same time as the state, frankly, without using emotive language, seizing 10% of the shares of big companies with most of the dividends going to the, to the Treasury, you know, are you saying that's not going to impact the UK's reputation as an investment destination? Now, I agree with Michael, and, you know, we've discussed this in, 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 the, in the past, that there is scope for the state to borrow more. But I would put that borrowing, Katie, into targeted bonds linked to specific projects with revenue streams. The state will then be able to borrow the money on much more, even more favourable terms, uh, locking in those low interest rates for as long as possible, rather than just increasing the size of the state willy-nilly as an, almost an end in itself, an ideological end, and then purporting to spend the money efficiently. I mean, on that, just briefly, in this week's magazine, we also have an interview with the Chancellor. And one thing Sajid Javid is talking about is this decade of renewal and, and the fact that if there is a Tory majority government, they will be borrowing more. Is the type of borrowing the Tories are putting forward, I suppose, more aligned with what you're suggesting and productive, or does that also worry you? Yeah, I see signs of actually, believe it or not, in our very fractured, uh, partisan, hyper-partisan politics, particularly during an election campaign, as, as Michael will appreciate, uh, of course, we're focusing on divisions. But I actually see signs of some kind of rapprochement in the mainstream party politics towards more infrastructure spending, towards uh, ideas like sharing the planning uplift when land gets planning permission and using that to fund uh, local investments in infrastructure, an argument I've outlined in my book, Home Truths, in which I acknowledge Michael in the uh, because we because we discussed it. Right and left are now coming together, believe it or not, despite the madness uh, of of the media battle, in order to put these ideas forward. I think it's actually a shame when there are some really good ideas about more infrastructure investment, and God knows we need more about more investment generally, about more skills, more house building. I think it's a shame that the kind of centre of the of the Labour Party is shifting left away from that consensus, because I think if the two sides came together, they could achieve a great deal. But just as Liam says, the broad uh, message from both the Conservative and the Labour manifestos on the capital spending side is that we do need to spend more and that 
borrowing to do that at current very low interest rates is a very good idea. But so just to give you an example of Labour's not increasing the size of the state for its own sake, as Liam suggests, or willy nilly, as he also suggests, but for a purpose, is Labour Party takes the climate and environmental crisis seriously. As we are hearing from the the UN Climate Conference in Madrid, and from all of these uh, reports that are now coming out, we are facing a climate emergency. And Labour has a serious plan to tackle that and to try and decarbonise our economy. Now that is an investment programme because we need to put the money into more renewable energy and energy efficiency, in sustainable transport, in better agriculture and so on. All of the things we need to take greenhouse gas emissions out of our economy So this is not a question of doing this for ideological reasons. This is a question of trying to meet the needs of the economy and of society. And the fact that the Conservatives have now broadly accepted, finally, that you can borrow to create capital assets which then sit on your balance sheet and generate a return in order to meet the needs of the economy and of our society is a good thing. Now... I think we could probably be here all day and night if we wanted to, um, (laughs) going back and forth. But seeing as there's a a glint of consensus there, I wanted to end by asking you both a question, which is, I mean, ultimately, if if it is the case, as all the polls suggest, that a Labour majority is very unlikely, it seems that at most we'll have a Labour minority government. They will not be able to implement everything in that manifesto. Liam, you get this question, a slightly different one from Michael. Um, <laughs> of every policy in that manifesto, which is the one that fills you most with dread? Of all the policies, the one that fills me most with, with not so much dread, but fear that it's going to be bad for you know the country that I'm part of uh, and wealth creation is the seizing of 10% of the shares of large companies. Now, Labour says this is a sort of worker inclusion fund because some of the dividends will go to workers. Actually, £500 a year of the dividends will go to workers and the rest will go to the Treasury. Look, this is the stuff of sort of tin pot dictatorships. This is expropriation. To say to you know, listed companies, privately owned companies, that you must transfer 10% of the ownership of your company somewhere else against their will, you know, one-off, even if it's over a period of time, will seriously damage the business environment and I think will lead to less investment, fewer jobs, less wealth being created, I'm afraid, for everybody. And Michael, uh, you may want to come back to that in your reply, but which is the policy that fills you with the most hope? Well, let me just reply on on that one because uh, it is a a fund uh, for worker ownership of the shares which Labour proposes, and it's 1% a year over 10 years. And it it mirrors what corporations have been doing uh, over the last 20 years in giving their shares to their executives. What companies have done is have vastly remunerated their chief executives and other board members and senior staff often uh, usually with share packages and Labour proposes that rather than give it to the uh, wealthiest people in the company, why don't give it to all the workers? So that's that proposal. Uh, The thing that fills me with hope is the investment programme in greening the economy. This investment programme takes place all over the country. So again, one of the things that Labour has seen in, in, in the way the economy is developed is just how much of the economy is now concentrated in London, the South East. And this is a programme to take that investment right across the country 
in things like energy efficiency in homes. And, and I do think that we need a government which finally takes the environmental crisis seriously and at the same time creates jobs and livelihoods uh, for people all over the country. And that's the thing that fills me with hope, uh, most of all, given the state of the world that we're now in. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Liam. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk Next, is tree planting the panacea to climate change? To look at the headlines of major parties pledging to plant millions or even billions of trees, you might think so. But in this week's issue, beef farmer and journalist Jamie Blackett writes that it's a short-term solution that lazily absorbs big corporates and wealthy celebrities of their carbon footprint. Jamie joins me down the line from Scotland now, together with Extinction Rebellion spokesperson Will Skeeping. Jamie, can you tell us about this modern obsession with tree planting? Well, I think we've seen from all of the political parties in this election that as the environmental concerns have risen up the agenda, so they've started a sort of bidding war, really, in the number of trees they would like to plant. And what I wanted to explore in the piece, really, was how, you know, sure, trees are beneficial, but really they're not the panacea that people seem to think they are in this country. I think the critical issue really is that we may be kidding ourselves that planting a, a block of Sitka spruce on a, a Scottish or a Welsh hillside is doing some good for the environment. But all we may be doing is making it more likely that some better trees will be cut down in the Amazon basin to provide our protein from soya or from beef from there. And we ignore very often the fact that the land that the, these new trees are planted on is probably already a very good carbon sink. Certainly up on moorland, you've got sphagnum moss growing, heather, and uh, it's very good at pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and down into the soil. And the same on grazing land in the uplands, if it's, if it's grazed efficiently, the, the science is coming out now more and more in favour of grazing systems because soil actually can carry more carbon than vegetation than the, the carbon in the atmosphere if we can get it all back into the soil then that's the answer and trees are beneficial but as i say what we may be doing is is harming our environment in other ways many we, we only have in this country we have something like 75 percent of the world's moorland that's excellent habitat for lots of different birds, many rare birds like the curlew. And if you plant one hectare of forestry up in the hills, because curlews won't nest within 500 metres of the forestry because of the, the risk of predators, you actually take out 20 hectares of habitat for one of our rarest birds. Yeah, and Will, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, do you agree that carbon offsetting isn't the panacea? Do you agree with well, Jamie? Well, yes, and in Jamie's piece, Jamie, you mentioned that you'd 
been to an Extinction Rebellion protest and that people have been sort of very pro-planting trees. I think it's just worth mentioning off the offset that Extinction Rebellion is not sort of there to offer the direct you know suggestions on what we should do we're all about citizens assemblies which is a gathering of world experts or experts to inform something like a thousand people to get together to make legally binding decisions about the future of how we move towards a carbon net zero by you know a deadline now within that i think it's absolutely vital that farmers play a huge important part as the you know you guys know the land and what it means on a local level and on a national level better than anyone and it's vital that you're part of that process and that XR Farmers, Extinction Rebellion Farmers, is a group that is that exists that played a major part in the recent rebellion in October. Now, oh, and what do XR Farmers do well, differently? Very keen to draw attention to the government that we need citizens' assemblies to organise a, a just transition. Now, in terms of planting trees, now there is this obsession with carbon offsetting at the moment, and we're finding airlines, fashion brands, Gucci, whatever it is, getting together and going, oh, we we will offset our flights. Now, the reality is that we need a drastic reduction in carbon and greenhouse gases in our atmosphere and just offsetting it is not going to reduce this now this is simply just not going to work we need to immediately begin to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and to reduce carbon emissions you talk about xr farmers but george monbiot closed down smithfield market and started preaching to the cameras about the need for British farmers to give up farming livestock and start growing plant-based food. I, I, you can go on Twitter and you can see the clip. Now, 65% of the UK is not suitable for growing crops. And the best way of producing protein off that land is to grow livestock. And as long as it's done in an intensive, extensive way that is intensively grazed, but a, a grazing system rather than a, a grain-fed system, then the science is now saying that that actually is the best way of fixing carbon out of the atmosphere. And so I think th this is where, you know, we are completely at odds. And, you know, I, if there are any XR farmers, I'd love to meet them because I, I've yet to meet, and I, you know, I live in a farming community and I have yet to meet anybody who really supported your movement and its objectives because all it seemed to do to want to do was to close down UK farming and with the, the, the sort of glib assurance that we could just either grow plant-based food or grow trees. Well... I think I think I'm just really saddened that that's the impression you've got from Extinction Rebellion because I mean there literally is a group called Extinction Rebellion Farmers and we how and many I, is in that group? I'm not sure, but it's in the hundreds. And they came down and I think they brought a large painted pink tractor running on biofuel or some kind of slightly more environmentally more pleasant option. Um, but where, to London. where do you think the biofuels come from? Will? Well, I, I'm not sure if it was biofuel, but I remember that it was something. Well, was... I'm sure it would have been biofuels. But do, do you know that I... the tallow from from cattle and sheep? actually goes into biofuels. So when you see livestock grazing in the fields, they're actually converting sunshine and rain into biofuel, as well as, well as into meat and leather and wool and all the other things. Well, let me come in on that. You talk a lot about how to solve climate change in a sort of just and ethical way. What, I mean, what do you say to farmers like Jamie, whose livelihoods can't be changed overnight, you know, who, who, who have these gen sometimes generations old things that are specific to their region of the country, who 
don't see what you're offering here. I mean, what is the right way to bring people on side there? I would certainly say that we, we are not trying to tell anyone, don't fly, don't eat meat, go vegan. I think the group that Jamie met were from a group called a, a related movement called Animal Rebellion. Now, as Extinction Rebellion, of which those guys are, you know, closely in many ways aligned, we're not telling anyone what to do. We're looking at a sort of increased democracy so that everyone who is a stakeholder in this future on this planet can look at how we're going to change our all our lives at every single touch point now if we'd done this 30 30 years ago or even more recently then the change could have been incremental unfortunately we've left it this long and the longer we leave it the more extreme the changes that will be necessary and again this is not extinction rebellion calling for this because we just want to everything to be different this is the science it's the physics and it's very difficult to argue with 11,000 scientists and we are a science-backed organization and if we start challenging that science and the truth or you know then th- and, and bringing politics into this otherwise completely just factual issue then it's a very very sad day for our future and it leaves me very very scared well you, well you seem to be implying that we that we as farmers are luddites and not and not engaging with the science that could, nothing could be more wrong British farming is right at the cutting edge, along with New Zealand farming as well, I would, I would single out, at farming in an environmentally sustainable way, in particular a way that sequesters carbon. And we are actually the people on the ground doing, doing the stuff. And a lot, of, a lot of this is just ignored I by completely groups agree. like yours, who don't no. want to engage with the science. On the, the contrary. The, the newer... The newer science actually is saying that grazing systems are the right way to get carbon back into the soil where it belongs. These are, this is inconvenient science for a lot of people in your movement, if I can put it that way. I, I'm not sure, uh, you've, you've distanced yourself from the animal rebellion people, but you know there is a, a vegan tinge to your movement you are you are encouraging we, people not to eat meat or to eat less meat and think, that and that strikes directly at the livelihoods of people in the countryside in the north and west of the UK I think what Jamie brings out here is quite an interesting point just to wrap this podcast up Will which is that the Extinction Rebellion is a decentralised movement so you can't vouch for what everyone says and there are closely related affiliations with other organisations. Do you worry that environmentalists who don't quite understand you know the proper science people like you know Alton John or Nicola Sturgeon who do want to carbon offset and plant trees do you worry that they're giving you guys a bad reputation almost by jumping on a bandwagon and doing it in what you think is the wrong way I think we we all need to be doing everything we can I think that's the reality we've left this so, so, so Alton John offsetting his I think I think if, okay? if that's no I think I, I'm not going to criticize Elton John for doing this I'm not going to criticize anyone for trying to do what they can now I, would I prefer Elton John not to fly and set that as an example? Yes. But like, if that's currently what he's capable of, then that's great. And what we're going to need to do is all get together, everyone, farmers, all these uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion activists, lawyers, doctors, whoever you are, of which there are many in Extinction Rebellion, and hopefully we'll find a way to use an independent body to bring citizens' assemblies into this to look at how we can all create an equal and just transition for everybody. We're certainly not telling anyone to suddenly start changing 
changing their behaviours. Obviously, there are things we can all do in the immediate present as individuals, but this will only ever work. And we will only manage to stop the worst effects of climate and ecological crisis if we do this together as a community. All right. And on, on that on that very nice uniting note, we're going to have to end it then. Will and Jamie, thanks very much. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months, from the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books conversation. And last, how young is too young to know about politics? Andrew Watts writes in this week's issue about his six-year-old's recent declaration of support for Boris Johnson, which didn't turn out to be all it seemed. So what's the best way to teach kids about politics when they start to ask difficult questions? Andrew joins me down the line now, together with Freddie Gray, editor of Spectator USA, with his son Gus, who, at the age of seven, is representing the youth constituency. So, Andrew, your son recently declared himself as backing Boris. Can you tell us what happened? Oh, I was driving uh, along in the car with my wife. And I should tell you, to start off, I'm a Tory and she is Lib Dem in this election. And my son just announced from the back of the car, uh, we were talking about the election, I think, uh, that he was very much in favour of Boris. And uh, I, I was delighted. My wife was horrified. And uh, but we probed a bit, you know, we didn't want to shut him down immediately. And it, it turned out that he'd so, heard something about Boris being in favour of cake and in favour of eating it. And this was very much a policy he could get behind. So that's why he, he was going to vote for him. And we had to explain that he couldn't vote yet. But uh, in, in six, 12 years time, he's perfectly at liberty to make that decision. Is, um, is politics something that you talk about a lot in such a politically divided family? Uh, we can do, within strict limits. Uh, I mean, at the moment, we've got two huge signs in our garden for our respective parties. And it, it comes up in conversation more because, you know, you're out in the street, uh, you see people leafleting, uh, people come to the door. And uh, my son wants to know who they are, what they want, uh, why they're handing over these envelopes all the time. So it, it does come up, uh, but we, we've been trying not to lead him too much. Mm. Although it's very difficult to answer questions without leading in one way or the other. Freddie, you've got kids a similar age to Andrew's. Is this something that you've... Um, well, yeah, that's one you. of them. One of them is right here. Yes, Gus. And, and Welcome, well, Gus. Well, what I should Hi. Say... <laughs> Gus, are you, are you interested in politics? Yes. What do you like about politics? Uh, I like that most of them are very funny. <laughs> Who's the funniest? Uh, Trump. Oh, uh, yeah. Donald Trump. You've always been interested in Donald Trump, haven't you? <laughs> Why are you so interested in him? Because he's funny. Yeah. Actually, this is something I really enjoyed about Andrew's piece, is that um, a lot of parents are very kind of precious about talking about politics in front of children and think it's very dangerous and you might brainwash them, whatever. But really, they're busy brainwashing themselves. And <laughs> Trump's got all sorts of ideas about Trump. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Gus <laughs> has all sorts. Of, I just called you Trump. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
But you you were always interested in Trump, and and when we went to America, you just kept on talking to people about Trump, didn't you? <laughs> what did you What did you find out about him other than that he was funny? Um, no idea. Forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Left an impression then. Andrew, do you agree with that? I mean, is it is it too easy to be too precious about political opinions when it comes to kids? I mean, should you just be exposing them to everything? I I, I certainly know that my politics started with my, my father not that he laid down the law or anything but he was a small businessman and i i saw how hard he worked you know i remember on his deathbed he he was doing his accounts because he didn't want his um employees to be paid late and and the chance of me ending up being one of those lefties who talk about the boss class oppressing the workers virtually negligible uh, but as, as so, uh, as a youngster, I remember being very interested in politics and very, very, very right wing. And in time, you learn that the world is slightly more complicated than that. But I think you you never lose that that core unless something somewhere along the line knocks you off. And I think that's true of everyone. Well, I mean, I th- I, I get slightly worried about brainwashing sometimes with my children in schools because. I remember once Ferdy, Gus's elder brother, came back from school and he said, we learnt about the general election day, this was in the last general election, and we learnt that the red people care about people, the blue people care about money, and the green people care about the planet. Which, I mean, I thought was quite a succinct <laughs> summary. But it, it certainly, they do, you do... You do learn a bit about elections when they're going on. They talk about it in schools, don't they, Gus? Yeah, uh, I would... I would say that the, out of the three parties that my, my dad spoke about, that the blue party was the worst. Oh, because <laughs> they care about money. Yeah. But you think they're going to win, don't you? Because that's Boris Johnson's party. And you were saying before we started recording, you think they're going to win. Yes, but I'm really sad they're going to win. You're really who, sad about who it. Do you... <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have wanted either of the other two to win. Mo- slightly mostly just by a bit um the party who cared about the world because there's a lot of pollution going on oh, yeah I, see, I take it back about brainwashing it definitely does happen <laughs> in schools <laughs> doesn't sound like yours is getting very well we've actually also got mary wakefield here mary you wrote recently about how young people are being you know almost worshipped by adults you know their their views is from Gus was talking about the environment there yeah are being seen as sacrosanct I mean, are we are we caring too much about what kids? Oh, think? Definitely, we're caring too much about what kids. Apart from Gus, who's got extremely sensible. Sounds um, like it. Yeah. But yeah, I think um, you know this idea that young people have uh, better opinions because they've got more of their lives ahead of them is weird. I mean, they obviously know what their teachers told them, but they've hardly researched the issues very carefully. Um, I mean, look at the support for for Jeremy Corbyn amongst people who know absolutely nothing about his economic policies, and I include myself in that. Well, an- another bit of brainwashing I remember with Ferdy was when he came back the night after the referendum, and he said, "I was told that he was told that uh, you can either stay in the European Union and be with all your friends, or leave and be all by yourself." Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, he was very upset about uh, Brexit for a while because of that. Yeah, also, but I mean, he got over it pretty this, quickly. Yeah. Gus, do you find that what your dad says has a big effect on you? What Dad or teachers, who has more political uh, effects on you? Who would you trust politically, your dad or the teachers? Interesting question. Thanks, what Gus, do you man. think? 
I think I think you might listen to your teachers more, but with your dad, you might perhaps do the. Some kids might do the opposite of what their parents think, you know, because they react a bit against them. I don't know. And but what do you think, Andrew? What do you think about you know you you said all these parents? It's very cool around my neck of the woods. N one to, you know, tell your kids that Trump is evil and that the work you know, the most powerful country in the world is governed by this evil man, and then your friends hear your kid talking about that and they think you're very right on. Isn't that a bit alarming for the kid to be convinced that that the world is run by a sort of evil genius in the manner of Dr. No? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And one of the things that we haven't mentioned, uh, uh, as well as being of different politics, my wife is Jewish. And the reason she really hates Corbyn is because of the whole anti-Semitism issue. Now, we have never mentioned um, anti-Semitism to our son. He really doesn't need to know about that. So there are some things that I think children should be protected from. He's going to find out about after his bar mitzvah. What age age do you think kids should be allowed the the vote? Oh, as as, as late as 18 is fine. Uh, Purely because when you argue with a 16-year-old, you look like such an appalling person. (laughs) Gus, what do you think? Um, I would say... Something like eleven all over. Okay, eleven. You've put pretty sound opinions. Would you want to vote in this election? Yes. You would want to vote. Yes, I would. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you vote for, Gus? Just tell everyone who to vote for. Um, boss. Thank you, Gus, Freddie, Mary, and Andrew. And that's it for this week. Do pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the episode, as well as more from William Dalrymple, Robert Toombs, and an interview with Christopher Biggins. And you can pick up 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, as well as a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. 